right, if you want to go ahead and join me in turning to Acts chapter 1, looking forward to really starting to dig in on our new series here on the book of Acts. And the uh, title of the series, Build My Church, of course, two ways of thinking of that. Jesus said that I will build my church, and uh, we know that he will, right? That's a promise. It will happen. Uh, but also beyond that, there's a responsibility placed upon believers uh, to edify one another and use the gifts to build up one another uh, within the church. And so this morning we will uh, be considering both of those areas as we look at the first three verses of the book of Acts in just a moment. Preparation for the message, I was reading um, some of uh, David Martin Lloyd-Jones. Lloyd-Jones, you may be familiar with him, um, preacher over in Great Britain. Uh, he uh, is always convicting when you read him. And uh, he had uh, preached a sermon on this topic, and he, he brought out, and this was you know, from his, his day, so some time ago, but brought out the question, what is Christianity? And um, he, he put it in the context of the fact that the gospel is the only hope for the world today. And the, the contrast to that is, is everything else, and in comparison, it's, it's lacking. Right? It, it, is, it falls short of that. Everything else has failed compared to that. And uh, whatever you try, it, it doesn't matter. It's, it's not going to satisfy whether it's philosophy, whether it's politicians, uh, whether it's the various religions of the world, and certainly we have folks trying to dabble in all of those uh, at times, trying to fulfill this great need. But there is hope, and there's hope that's found in one place alone, and that's in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He uh, notes, and he, he quotes here, uh, the, this idea, someone may say, surely you can't claim there is any hope, uh, that, that there's any hope in the gospel either. It's been tried now for 2,000 years and has obviously failed quite as much as the various other things to which you referred. In other words, look at where we are. Hasn't the gospel been around for 2,000 years? Why didn't it fix everything yet? And uh, his, his response to that is one that's given by uh, G.K. Chesterton here. This is the following. Uh, G.K. Chesterton quoted the following. He said, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and not tried. And uh, I think a, a poignant point there, uh, there are very few who are willing to walk the narrow way to walk the path that Christ has set out in, in the simple truth of the gospel. And, and that's what G.K. Chesterton is referring to here. You know, generally speaking, the, the world has never tried Christianity. It, ne it has never done that. Um, and so it, the gospel itself is still the only hope for the world, even in terms of experience. So Lloyd-Jones goes on and he asks the question, it's essential that we know what Christianity is. We, we need to ask, what is it if Christianity, if the gospel is so essential? And beyond that, what is the Christian church? What, what is this thing that, that Christ has instituted? What is her business? What is her message? That's how he describes it. 
the fact is that today we live in an age where there is a great deal of confusion in regard to what the church is about, what it should be about, and all of those things. We, we live in a, a great deal of um, confusion in regard to um, what, what is happening, what is going on in, in the world. And, you know, certainly some of that confusion comes from outside the church as people give descriptions of various things about what a church should be. Uh, there's certain ideas about what a, what a church should be and what our responsibilities are. Um, I, I get them uh, in phone calls all throughout the week as folks tell me what we ought to be doing as a church, and uh, they have no problem at all telling me what we need to do. Um, and it, it generally is for their benefit, right, and often for their financial benefit. Um, but I think probably the worst issue is the fact that the church itself seems to be utterly confused about what it's been called to do. And, and so as we, as we um, consider this fact of, of this message that's going out that either uh, is, you know, as, as we think about it, this message that's going out for, for the folks who are in the pews, it can be utterly confusing today about what a church should be about. Right now, now certainly, um, it is good to teach people to be kind and nice. But that actually is not the central message of the church. It, it is a component of demonstrating love, but it's not the central message. It's not the core. Um, there are places today where, where uh, folks have, have offered and declared the main business of the church is to deal with politics. Right? That's what we need to be about, politics of the day. That will solve the world's problems. Now, that's not what Scripture says. In fact, there's not a whole lot that Jesus preaches about Rome during his day, if you really think about it. Uh, it, it is a very small segment. You know, there are those who declare, well, we, we uh, just all need to try to look like Jesus. And if we, if we all just try to look like Jesus, you know, love everybody, be kind. Now, their version of Jesus is not the biblical Jesus, but there is this idealized view of what this or who this Jesus is and, and what they think he should, he should look like. And often it's a Jesus made in their own image, made in the midst of, of their own ideals. You know, Whatever it, whatever it is that, that people cling to in the church today, whether it's these things or to draw a big crowd or entertainment or declare these various things, the, the fact is that the Bible itself provides for us the principles of what a church should look like. We see really um, what, what we might call um, preparing the ground here in the book of Acts as we're starting this beginning point as, as if we think and use, use a, um, a, a metaphor here of, of a church as a building. Now, we know that the church is not the building, right? It is the people. It is the believers. But if we use that metaphor of a, of a building, we, we might be describing here that this is the preparation, the preparing the ground for the, the beginning of the church, this, this is not a political program, but it's one that is based upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And so we're going to see that described for us here. Now I want to draw your attention back um, to the book of Luke. And, and you don't have to turn there. I've got it up on the screen. But Luke 1.1 1, 1 says uh, the following. Remember, Luke and Acts, both written by Luke. Luke is basically volume 1. Acts is volume 2. And you'll see that in here. But Luke 1.1, 1, 1, for as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. So just a, just a reminder here, Luke, first, first volume, this is the introduction to Luke. And, and Luke here is, is writing in the Gospel of Luke that this, this is, in essence, a volume that is going to an individual, Theophilus. Um, we, what would happen in that day was there was a, what we might call a patron system. People would pay individuals to be able to write, in essence, to, 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 keep a, to, to write a volume. I mean, I... I don't know what our, our closest equivalent might be, maybe, maybe a sabbatical. <laughs> you, know, you, get, you get pay, you get to go off, and you get to, to write something or, or produce something. Um, but, but the idea here is, okay, Luke, in the midst of this, is, is noting, okay, this is, this is written to this Theophilus. We don't know a great deal about him, pro- most likely a patron, um, most likely someone who we would consider in the, the middle class in order to be able to, to uh, fund this. And so that's how he starts out, um, and, and he gets that honorary title, most excellent. We, we note here in that last verse, right, Luke is writing for a purpose. He wants Theophilus to know the certainty of the things that he's been taught, right, what he's been taught. He, he said, Theophilus, you've heard these things. Let me fill in the gaps for you. I, I want you to know all of the details. And so the Gospel of Luke provides all of those details about the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And in that last chapter of, of the Gospel of Luke uh, discusses the resurrection of Jesus in, in Luke 24. Then it's the road to Emmaus. That's when Jesus appears to the two disciples there, about seven miles outside of Jerusalem. Then he comes into the Jerusalem. He appears in the locked room with the disciples, and he commissions them. Uh, to do really the work of the ministry, what he's called them to do. And then it ends with the ascension. And, and so now as we move into the book of Acts, we're going to see that, that Luke really picks up from that point uh, of the end of volume one and starts volume two. And uh, as most people would do with the second volume at the beginning, he gives a little bit of a reminder of what the last chapter was about. Right? That's, that's what he, he goes through here right at the beginning. So Acts 1.1 says the following, The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. Until the day in which he was taken up, after that he, he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom, he also, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And so that's our focus today. This second chapter, the section, second section, uh, as, as we work through this together. Let's look to Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you uh, for this study we have had uh, in these moments as we um, look through these various passages. And, and 
look together how, Lord, in your, in your word, you have provided for us uh, both of these volumes. One uh, describing the life and works of, of, of Jesus, uh, but Father, a second volume that goes on displaying for all to see that the work of the ministry did not stop with Jesus. He who is alive continues to build his church even today. Father, we pray that as we work through this book together over the coming weeks, she prepare our hearts. Father, help us to see the areas where either our church or those churches in the book of Acts are in need of correction. Father, help us to glance and, and see in your perfect word what you are calling this ministry of the church to look like. Father, as your people, help us to grow and mature. We pray, Lord, for the advancement of the church, for souls to be saved, for disciples to be made. Father, we, we pray for individuals to be baptized. Father, we give you thanks for, for the way in which you have made clear that you are mighty and strong to save and that your work continues in this day and age. We pray that we would take heart in all of these things. We give you the praise for what you have done, Lord, and what you are going to continue to do. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have this second volume now in the book of Acts, and as verse 1 has instructed us here, it, it, is, it is a volume written once again to Theophilus. And, and even in, in verse 1 itself, um, Luke makes mention in verse 1 that there was a former volume, right? The former treatise have I made. Remember that book I wrote before Theophilus? Um, Remember what it was about? And he gives the description here of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. If you want to know what the Gospel of Luke is about, it's a volume about all that Jesus began both to do and teach. That's, that's, how, that's how its author describes it. Right? That's, that's the description of, of what it is all about, and it, it is attested here by Luke himself. As we think about uh, this one uh, Theophilus, it's interesting that, that he would be one who certainly had heard the teachings of the gospel. He had then read volume one, so he read the gospel of Luke. And as we come to this point, um, he, has, he has received a great deal of teaching about Jesus. You know, we, he, Luke is writing this gospel knowing that that history of what Jesus taught and what he did is now, uh, has now been consumed by his readers. In other words, this is, this is not written from a position of a, of a blank slate, so to speak. It's volume two. You, you, you had to read volume one already, right? That had to take place. And so he, he knows that that, description, that that history is there upon which he can build. So as we, as we read this, it is the things that Jesus began to do and teach how long until the day in which he was taken up, right? Re referring there 
to the way in which um, Jesus himself was, went through that process of, of the ascension. Afterwards, what happened? He, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. All right, so we have, we have these various things to, described here uh, for us. Let's, let's go back and remember from the beginning. We have a book here written to Theophilus, another volume written to Theophilus about the things that Jesus did and he taught until the day in which he was taken up, until the point of the ascension. Right, so that's, that's the description of Luke. Now, if you remember, what did Luke end on? What was the last part in Luke? The ascension, right? The ascension. So, so the description here is, is really laying out for us, in essence, a, a rough outline of what the gospel of Luke is about. And it ends on the ascension. And so he's reminded that's when volume one ended. Now, as, as we uh, consider this Theophilus, you know, this, this whole idea of referring to a patron, so to speak, that was not that unusual in that day. Um, you know, it seems like, well, was the book just for Theophilus? No, it was intended for more people than that. Theophilus was the patron who paid for Luke to be able to do this. And, and so there are other places that we see in the ancient world where, where folks who were writing histories, writing, writing things like um, Josephus, when he wrote Jewish Antiquities, which was his, 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 in his autobiography, and he wrote two volumes called Against Appion. And all of those he wrote to his patron named Epaphroditus. And at the beginning of Against Aphrion, you know how he addresses Epaphroditus? Epaphroditus, most excellent of men. Sounds a whole lot like Luke 1.1, 1, 1, right? And so, so this idea of a, of a patron would have been well known in that day. And it, it didn't mean that the volume was only intended for that one individual. But, but rather, it was in essence, hey, thanks, right? It, it, it's, it's like when you read at, at, the, uh, at the beginning the, the dedication of the book. Uh, I dedicate this volume to my wife who supported me through all of these things. She, you know, all of these things. You, you read that type of, that's what this is, right? That, that's what this description is. It, it's a note of thanks at the beginning. To, to let you know who helped in making this possible. So, so here we have this, this reference uh, to, to, to the one here at the beginning. And, and so the implication, right, of, of, of what, what happened before here, remember, first volume, the things that Jesus continued to do and teach until when? His ascension. Right, so, so and, and that's the scope of, of the, the first volume. So what's going to happen in the second volume, the things that Jesus continued to do and teach? Wait, wait, we just had an ascension. <laughs> He's, what, how, do we, how do we do with that? Well, it still is the things that Jesus continues to do and teach. But verse 2 says, after that, he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. What's going on? Jesus is not physically on the earth anymore. Jesus is continuing to work in the world, and he is continuing to teach in the world. But how is he doing it? He's doing it through the Holy Ghost. How do we see that? Well, of course, we see it through the apostles. We have the rest of the New Testament for us to see God's work through the Holy Spirit 
as, as, as he moved, uh, the Holy Spirit moved men to write these words. He, he is at work through the Holy Spirit, and he's continuing these things. So what, what's going on in the, in the Gospel of Acts? Well, God is at work through the Holy Spirit and working through this time uh, in the midst of this to, to build and to grow the church. So through the Holy Spirit, Jesus gives his parting charge to the disciples. He, he tells them what they are to do. And, and with that, right, these commandments, the ones that he's chosen, uh, then have to then go forth in the early stages of ministry. What were the early apostles relying on after Jesus left? Well, they, they had teaching that they could look back on, what Jesus had instructed them in. They had, of course, Jesus' teaching in those 40 days as he appears to them. Um, but beyond that, what do they have? They have the Holy Spirit of God. They have the Holy Spirit of God to instruct them during this time. Luke 6 Verse 13 says, And when it was day, he called unto him his disciples, and of them he chose twelve, whom he also named apostles, Simon, whom he also named Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, and John, Philip, and Bartholomew, Matthew, and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, uh, called uh, Zealots, and Judas, the brother of James, and Judas Iscariot, which also was the traitor. And and so, of course, uh, Judas will later be uh, replaced by Matthias, and we will, we will see that actually uh, later on here uh, in this chapter later on. But, but um, with that, right, Jesus here has, has, been, has called together these 12 for a specific purpose with a specific plan. It goes on, and, and Romans 1.4 notes that, that God the Father had, had um, placed his blessing upon Jesus, so to speak, publicly, as Romans 1, 4 says, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. This description here, of course, referring to um, that, that time where, where we knew that, that God had set apart Jesus for this particular role and, and ministry. And so here's the Son of God being sent from the Father to die for the sins of the world. And, and so in the, the midst of this, um, the, the disciples then, right, uh, l- looking at the risen Christ, he is indicating here the power by which they are to carry out this. And, and John 20, 22 uh, says the following, And when he had said this, he breathed on them and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Right, this here is what's taking place in that room in Jerusalem when Jesus is meeting with those disciples there. And, and so... It, here it is once again, that same spirit, the same one um, by which all of the apostolic acts would later be pushed through, that would be carried through um, and performed. Here, um, they, they are, uh, the disciples are in essence being uh, anointed, blessed, sent out, uh, commissioned, whatever term you want to use there, in order to be able uh, to carry out these things that Jesus has called them to. It's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing example of, of God uh, really, we might say, commissioning, right, these, uh, these, these apostles for the work that is yet ahead. And Jesus himself um, here is described as breathing on them 
so that they receive the Holy Ghost. Acts 1-3, as we look ahead to this third verse, says, To whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So, between the resurrection and the ascension, we have, we have Jesus appearing at various intervals over a 40-day period, both to his apostles and other followers. And, and the, the, the fact, what, what is the point behind it? Well, it, it's one that made it abundantly clear, right? Infallible proofs that he was alive. Right? He showed himself alive. This 40-day period is described very simply by Paul in a list that's not comprehensive in 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 5 says, And then he was seen of Cephas, right? Peter there. And then of the twelve, goes on in verse 6, After that he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. Verse 7, after that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. All right, so a, a brief description there of some of the places where Jesus was seen, but we know that that's not a complete. We have other accounts in Scripture of, of other places where, where Jesus is, is seen. It's not exhaustive. Who was the first to see Jesus after the resurrection? Mary Magdalene, right? She thought he was the gardener, <laughs> remember? Yeah. Mary, the mother of James, Salome, and Joanna. They were returning from the tomb. Peter had that encounter with Jesus after he had denied him three times. Remember that one? Of course, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, they recognized him later after he broke bread with them. And it became clear this is Jesus. Ten apostles, right? Thomas wasn't there. Judas was dead. They were gathered in that locked room in Jerusalem, and there Jesus appeared to them. Thomas, who then doubt, who had doubted the resurrection, saw the wounds of Jesus and touched them, and he believed. Then after that, eleven apostles, this included Thomas, they saw Jesus in that same room. A week later, seven of the apostles saw Jesus by the Sea of Galilee and had breakfast with him. Five hundred believers saw Jesus at the same time in Galilee. James, the brother of Jesus, saw him. He was the one who had become the leader of the Jerusalem church. The eleven apostles saw Jesus ascend to heaven from the Mount of Olives. Does it stop there? Well, no. Paul saw Jesus on the road to Damascus, became an apostle. John, of course, saw Jesus in a vision on the Isle of Patmos. If you're going to say which one's shakiest, that would probably be the one. But, you know, in terms of he saw the vision, but he wasn't necessarily physically present with him, right? As, as was the case in all the others. But all these recorded appearances of Jesus after the resurrection, and, and, you know, there could have been more. We, we don't know. There may have been others that the New Testament didn't even mention. Pretty incredible when you think about it. What was Jesus teaching during all that time? What do you think he talked to them about? 
Because, I, I mean, we, we heard about him eating breakfast, you know, we heard about him breaking bread. I, I'm pretty sure it wasn't just about food. You know, I'm sure something else was going on. Um, we, we don't know that Jesus was a Baptist, right? We, <laughs> it wasn't all about food. There had to be some teaching involved as well. Well, you, you know, a lot of, there, there are those who, there were heretics who, who sprung up, who tried to fill in the blanks. I've heard of Gnosticism, right? Those schools which you have to get the, the deeper knowledge. Second century and later, they were growing and, and expanding, and, and they said, well, you know, the Bible doesn't have this teaching that Jesus explained at that point, but uh, we've got it. We're the custodians of that secret knowledge. We are the interpreters of that secret knowledge. Come to us and we'll tell you more. Sounds a lot like some cults today, doesn't it? Right? Whether it's Joseph Smith or uh, whoever, right? We, we have the same type of thing going on. Luke does tell us the content, though, of the, that teaching in verse 3. If you look back to, to verse 3, uh, it, it tells us what he was talking about. Verse 3 there in Acts 1 said, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. You want to know what he was talking about? He was talking about the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus was instructing them on. And so it wasn't the secret knowledge of the Gnostics or anything else that, that people have tried to fill in the blanks with. It was about the kingdom of God. We, we know that Israel, from the very beginning, uh, the er earliest days, all the way back in Exodus, recognized God as king. And uh, we see language of his reign here in Exodus 15, 18. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. We, we know that he is described in, in scripture as being king over all in, in places like Psalm 103, verse 19. The Lord hath prepared his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom ruleth over all. Right, so, so he's king, not just over Israel, but he's king over all of the earth. He rules over all. And, and this is uh, most clearly seen when, when people recognize him and his authority and, and what he is, and they bow the knee to him as king. They say, you're the boss. You're the king. You're the ruler. And, and this was particularly noted right among Israel, however imperfectly they, they did it. And, and so the, the Israeli kings... You know, as they would, were in the midst of that uh, covenant relationship, we could, we could say we're almost like vice regents, right? They were under the head king, right? They were underneath him as they ruled. Psalm 147, 20 says, He hath not dealt so with any nation, and as for his judgments, they have not known him. Praise ye the Lord. Who's that talking of? Israel. And so Israel had a unique and special relationship with the Lord, and, and so their kings were as vice regents uh, over him. Now, his kingship didn't end with the crucifixion or the resurrection or the ascension. In fact, he is still king today, and Daniel 2, 44, points to that future kingdom. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Daniel 7 13 and 14 goes on, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven, 
and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. This first kingdom is described by Jesus as he talks about the inauguration in Mark 1, 14. And now after that, John was put in prison. Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel, what gospel? Of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. You want to know what the basic content of the kingdom of God was? It is near Repent and believe the gospel. That's the basic content of the kingdom of God. We have that description for us right here in Mark 1, verse 15. Mark 9, 1 goes on and says, And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that there be some of them that stand here which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. You know, this description here of of the kingdom of God is one in which we see that it is something that Jesus himself has inaugurated. He he is the king. He served as king. He's been there. And and yet, this kingdom will continue. We have not experienced it in its its fullness yet. The way of saying it is the kingdom of God is already here. And the kingdom of God is not yet fully here. There is more to come. There is more that that will be done in the future, more that believers will see in the future, something we have to look forward to. When Jesus was speaking to his disciples uh, in that room there in Jerusalem, it's, it's recorded for us here in Luke 24, some of what was said. Luke 24, 45 says, Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. This is Jesus to the apostles here. And he said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all the nations, beginning at Jerusalem. What was Jesus teaching the apostles? What was he teaching during those 40 days? That all the nations should hear of the need to repent for the remission of sins, and that it should be preached among all the nations going out from Jerusalem. You want to see that in action? It's called the book of Acts. We see as it starts, as they carry out that process. I want to read a quote for you here. C.H. Dodd said, The kingdom of God is conceived as coming in the events of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And to proclaim these facts in their proper setting is to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. You want to advance the kingdom of God? You want to preach the kingdom of God? Preach the true message of the gospel. 
preach the life, the death, and resurrection of Jesus. And can we go a step further? Preach about the Jesus who will come again in the final consummation of all of these things. We have much to look forward to. Acts 17.31 says, Because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness, by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. See, there's a day coming, and there is judgment that's coming. And all of us here on earth have received the assurance from God himself that is true because of the resurrection of Jesus. You know, that judgment is described in the preaching of the apostles. We see it at various places, places like Philippians 2.10 that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We see that coming judgment. So what is our role today? Well, we continue on these very things that Jesus laid out for these apostles at the very beginning, preaching the kingdom of God, preaching the gospel, preaching the need to repent and believe the gospel message, preaching the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and preaching that he's coming again. What a great privilege to carry out this ministry that was inaugurated by the Lord himself, which was declared through the Holy Spirit to the early apostles, the same Holy Spirit who lives in us if we know the Lord Jesus Christ. What is this? This is the message of Christianity. This is the message of the gospel. This is the message of what the church is to do. You know, it's not like the world around us just somehow needs some new program to teach us how to live better. They may be helpful. I'm not saying they're terrible. But it's not the primary role of the church. It, it's not our greatest need today. Our greatest need is to know God and to know him better and to be able to take that truth that we learn and to share it, to spread it out as the world around us hears the gospel of Jesus Christ. If today I gave all of you a million dollars, don't get your hopes up, but if today I gave all of you a million dollars, would that solve all your problems in life? Yeah. If today I gave everyone in the world a million dollars, would that solve all the world's problems? Yeah. It wouldn't. Would it solve our moral problem? Would it solve our sin problem? Would it solve the problem of death? All of a sudden, would we stop dying? I mean, we throw a lot of money at medicine today. It hasn't solved that problem yet that I'm aware of. Would it solve the problem of where we spend eternity? Of course not, right? Of course not. See, the message 
Christianity, the message of the Bible, the message of the gospel, is not about somehow improving all the world. It's a message about changing people in spite of the world. It is a message in which people are prepared not just to live this life, but to live for eternity. See, that is what God has called the church to do. And in the midst of that, Jesus is active. He's working. He hasn't stopped. And we'll see his hand at work in the early church. And it'll go on, and it'll continue. And the day will come when believers are gathered into the Lord. And then he'll return, and judgment will take place. His kingdom will be from shore to shore. And he will be on that throne. You see, that message changed the world. When the apostles went around preaching this message from Jerusalem and spreading out, it changed the world. How's that message affected you today? How's it it affected you this morning? I mean, you're here. It obviously has affected you some, right? But if we pause and think about it, how serious are we about it? This is one of those messages where when, when we think about what what God has done and how he is at work. We have a responsibility on our part to, to, to really focus on this question. Hey, if, if the kingdom of God and preaching and declaring the kingdom of God from Jerusalem to all the world is what Jesus and the Holy Spirit put into the hearts and minds, those apostles, a plan to be carried forth, I, I think as believers we have a certain responsibility to say, how seriously have I taken his words? How has it changed my life? I don't believe that this was just a message for the apostles. I don't believe that this was for the early church and it stopped. Now, the the direction of it, you know, I don't think we have to start in Jerusalem and start preaching there and walking away from it, right? But, But the idea of declaring the kingdom of God has not ended in this age. We have responsibility to declare it and, and it should be something that we, we live every day, waking up, rem- remembering it as what we have been commissioned to do. The responsibility that we have before us. How often do you think about the fact that in this message, Jesus saved you from hell and all the torments thereof? Something to rejoice over every morning. Tell you what, I think my mornings would be better if I remembered that every morning. Might even put a smile on my face rather than a grumpy groan. How often do you remember that we were saved from a punishment that we deserved and in its place we will experience the wonders and glories of heaven? That ought to put a smile on our face. You know, 
fact is, Jesus came to do something amazing for us. And our responsibility now is not so much, oh, I have to do, do, do. It's just, I have to tell other people about what he did. Isn't that incredible? The work's been done. Now we just declare it. We proclaim it. Oh, what a joy. You know, how differently would our churches be set up if instead of churches needing to have big events to try to attract lost people, that saved people actually talked about Jesus as they went about their day? Can you imagine how different the churches would look today? Can I encourage you as we begin this study, start thinking through those areas that where God's working in your heart about how to proclaim this message not, not necessarily through some special program or something that you have to do, but as you go about your day, use those moments to tell others about the kingdom of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the very things the apostles were commissioned to do. Carry that out. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the challenge put before us in your wonderful word. Father, help us to take seriously the message of the gospel. Father, we, we know that as we think about the benefits of the gospel, about a wonderful Savior who died for us, who was buried and rose again, Father, we, we have seen time and time again, whether through eyewitness accounts, this undeniable proof who our Savior is. Father, help us to declare it to the world around us. Help us not to be ashamed. Father, help us not to be silent. Lord, we so often think of all the various excuses that prevent us from speaking truth. Father, help us to just do what your word says to go and make disciples. Help us to just do what your word says to preach the kingdom of God, declare it to this generation. Father, help us to be obedient to your word. Father, we pray that as you work in our hearts, we would not go forth in some sort of, of spirit of, of simple, simply obligation, but rather of expanding, growing love who you are and what you've done. Father, help us to remember what you've done for us. May it be ever before our minds. Father, help us out of, out of that overflowing love to tell others. Father, we need you to do these things in our hearts. We give you thanks today, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.